that it's creature o'clock. So ring that buzzer, it sounds like a lion roar. Roar! And open the door to join us for the 41st meeting of the Animal Fan Club. I'm Cheerio Chipmunk Mike. And I'm trying to eat 80% of my body weight, Meredith. We meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the Dalmatian Station. Talk about our favorite animals. What we lack in expertise, we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow! So, saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom animalia. What's up, Meredith? Not much. It's Friday. Feeling good. Yeah, same. Yeah, we're, we're recording this on a Friday. It's TGIF. I know. It's like the best thing to do on a Friday. Talk malls, y'alls. Yeah. How was your week in Animal, Meredith? It was good, actually. Um, Well, two things. I was pondering animals, particularly last night, when there was like a strange flying bug in our room. He's been here for like a couple days now. I don't know what he is. And I was investigating him. He was kind of like hanging out on the wall. And I was like, you have mouth parts? Are you a true bug? I still cannot determine whether or not I saw sucking mouth parts. Oh. The requisite sucking mouth parts of a true bug. You got to get kind of close to really investigate the quality of the mouth part. It's true. And they often fly away before you can get that close. But he also had me thinking, or she, I'm not sure. I was like, does this bug know that they live in like the greatest city in the world, New York City? I was like, does this bug know how cool it is? Did this bug get off a bus at the Port Authority with a suitcase and a dream? NYC! <laughs> Ready to take on the big shitty. Yeah, I had a friend who moved here and I picked him up at the airport. This was back when I had a car. And I definitely played NYC from Annie in the car. Got it. And he wasn't quite ready for it. <laughs> I remember that vividly. He was just like, what the fuck, man? He's <laughs> got three books, two bags, and one you. Exactly. I, too, have great musical memories in your car, in your minivan. Yeah. Yeah, that van. Particularly the Beauty and the Beast soundtrack, my personal favorite. That sounds about right. Yeah. Sorry, I was just dominating this conversation. But one other thing. This is just like a fun newsflash I actually heard this morning while I was on my run on this program 1A from NPR. They were talking about German agriculture minister, like two days ago, I think, just in like instituted this new proclamation for dogs that all dogs are required to have two walks per day totally in an hour so like a half hour walk each time and then also dogs aren't supposed to be like it's illegal for your dogs to be chained up for over a certain amount of time or to be left alone all day like this is a decree from on high in germany wow the germans are not messing around with their canine care you know no they're like taking it super seriously i was like you go germany it was like these are not just fluffy little playthings. these are specific animals with specific needs whoa but it was actually really cute hearing all these like very serious like news international news reporters and journalists having this like serious discussion but then like getting really into dog puns because all of the people on the panel were dog owners and they were just like real life paw patrol and like 
I conducted an exclusive interview with Mike Cocker Spaniel Shitsy today, and she is really on board with this new law. And like, it was just so cute to see them get like so adorably whimsical. And then the last person was like, well, we have a miniature dachshund who is a German dog, mind you, and she just doesn't want to go on two 30-minute walks a day. She wants to go out, do her business, and come right back home. Whoa. I was like, I am living for this conversation right now. It's so cute. Different dogs have different wants and needs, I guess. It's, it's true. A bit oppressive to force the dogs to do things they don't want to do. Right, because that's not responding to their needs either. Well, Meredith, I'm going to talk about dogs now. Please. It was kind of a big week in dogs for me. Really? Yeah. Dog Gentleman Tyson made an appearance on a Zoom call. Yes, Tyson. Along with Diego, who's another dog of note. Mm -hmm. I think Diego displays gentlemanly qualities, but I don't know him as well as I know Tyson. Yeah. And then my friend Max, friend of the show, regular listener to the show. Hi, Max. Hi, Max. Max uh, has named the dog that he was fostering and now he's keeping. It's (gasps) Fricka Lumi Weir. Oh. Yes. Welcome to your forever home, Fricka Lumi Weir. Yeah. Well, Fricka is a Norse goddess from Wagner's Ring Cycle. Yes. Who is wed to Wotan or a.k.a. Odin. Yeah. And then (laughs) Lumi is the Finnish word for snow. And she's a cute little two-year-old lab mix, like a blonde lab. Oh, yes. And then most likely a Jack Russell or a rat terrier, which I do kind of have a lot of questions about Jack Russell's and labs interbreeding. I do. (laughs) I think perhaps are best left unanswered. Wow. That's fun. Yeah. That's some late night back alley stuff. It sure is. So I guess I've just been having a lot of dog energy this week. So, uh, I mean, maybe we're in alignment again, you know? That sounds great. Have you had a sense to, like, run in circles or chase after things? Well, every time I get into my bed, I stand on it and I walk in a circle three times before I lay down. Doggy dog week for Mike, but in a good way. Not dog eat dog, but a doggy dog. Doggy dog. Hi. <laughs> yeah. That's my week in animals, Meredith. That sounds wonderful. I'm I congratulate you. That's some fun stuff. I know you've been like wanting the dog energy and you haven't been quite able to accept it. Yeah. So you've arrived, my friend. Thanks. Yeah. I just I am definitely feeling I just want a dog in my life. I know. You know just kind of hanging out, just kind of looking around, being a dog. I relate to that. There have been so many. I've been out running a lot, and there's just so many great dogs. I just want a dog to, like, run with and, like, go to the park with me. So I, when I go to the park and I'm reading or something, there's just, like, a buddy there. So nice. Here's to dogs. Here is to dogs. Um. Well, should we get into it, Meredith? <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about something that's not dogs. All right. You go first. So... I guess let's kick it off with the old taxonomy cheer. Ready? Okay. Taxonomy you. Taxonomy we. Taxonomy who. Taxonomy. Kingdom. Animalia. Though I wouldn't mind a podcast about mold. Phylum. Cordata. Spines in flight. Class. Aves. Natural aviators. Order. Falconiforms. Diurnal birds of prey. Family. Falcani day. Look out for those talons. Genus. Falco, rock me on my dais. Species. Falco, peregrinus. 
cosmopolitan and highly skilled. It's my role model, the Peregrine Falcon. OMG. Yeah. The speediest of all the falcons. The speediest of all the animals, Mike. Wow. Yes. Hold on to your hat because a peregrine falcon might just swing by and blow it off in its wake. Anyhow, let me tell you what brought me to the peregrine falcon. So this week I attended a webinar about migratory raptors. Uh huh. Through the Autobahn Society. And it was very informative and very, um, just like adorably dry. It was just people just straight up like throwing facts at you, which is totally fine and totally fun. I learned about hawk watches that you can do where you kind of participate in counting hawks flying by, which might indicate uh, migratory patterns in your area. So there's like hawkcount.org. It's like a crowdsourced hawk counting app. But anyhow, so one of the birds discussed during this migratory raptor flight webinar was the peregrine falcon. So they're not super populous in this area, so they didn't cover them a whole lot. But my animal fact file had a file on the peregrine falcon. So that's the one I went with. Awesome. So this is up-to-date information from 1993. I'll tell you, though, not much has changed with the peregrine falcon. Though when I was looking at my animal fact file last week for the Komodo dragon, I will say that it was saying that they only live on uninhabited islands, which is not true, and that human attacks don't happen, which is definitely also not true. Mm. So I don't know. Wildlife fact file might not be the best source anymore. Right. Well, if there's one thing that we've learned it's that you cannot trust a single source and that the information that we're presenting is not necessarily extremely well vetted, but <laughs> provides a general overview and aids in the opening of lines of inquiry. Exactly. Entertainment purposes only. Affirmative. Turns out peregrine falcons, it was like such a good choice because they happen to be kind of like like the coolest birds in school because they hold all the superlatives. So I kind of wanted to structure my presentation around their like bird superlatives and just creature superlatives, really. But I also want to start off by just talking about what they look like, because they're they're definitely you look at them. They're like, that's definitely a bird of prey, even though I might not be able to say like exactly what it is. But so the peregrine falcon is about crow sized. So it's kind of a medium sized bird of prey, but it is one of the larger of the falcons. Okay. Mm hmm. So they've got bluish gray backs and then their bellies. So their, what would that be? Their ventral surfaces would be kind of whitish with little like brown stripy feathers in there as well. They're sexually dimorphic, but not in the way that you might be thinking. Okay. Because the ladies are a third larger than the men. Oh. Which is kind of like. Those are some chonky ladies. Yeah. Like, you go, girls. Yeah. I saw this fun fact in my animal fact file is that the males are often called tearsels, tear being the word in there, so referring to three as they are a third smaller than the females. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting, right. Um, so they mate for life. They hang out on high cliffs and crags, and they often um, return to the same nesting spot for life, but they don't actually build nests. Um, they just kind of like nestle into whatever natural vegetation is there and conducive to building a nest. Okay. 
So now we can, now that we know kind of what their lifestyle is and what they look like, where they're hanging out, now we can talk superlatives. Okay. So this, as you mentioned, is the fastest bird, but also the fastest animal in all of the kingdom animalia. And I will say I kind of have some, I take a little bit of issue with this because it's a bird, right? So they're flying. They're not actually like using their musculature to propel them forward in the same way like a cheetah is. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Like it kind of seems, not that it's not amazing and super cool, but they're really not working for it in the same way. Like calorie expenditure (laughs) is very different. Right. Where the cheetah has to run, the peregrine falcon just kind of dives and uses the power of gravity. Yes. Well, I'll tell you actually about that exact thing. So yes, they dive, but it's actually called a scoot or a stoop. It's called a stoop. So what happens, and this is related to their hunting, and this is the moment at which they reach their like peak speeds of 200 miles per hour, which is <laughs> insane. And actually one was clocked going at 242 miles per hour. That's like race car speed. It's insane. It's so crazy. I mean, think about how out of control you feel just like driving going like 90 or I do. <laughs> I'm not a speed demon on the road, that's for sure. So what they'll do is they actually, and I'm going to refer to my notes from the Raptor webinar, webinar. The process of this stooping is that they're soaring and soaring itself is a f- pattern of flight wherein like the birds just kind of outstretch their wings and they, re- they rely on rising thermals or like hot air rising, they kind of get on top of a thermal and they let it like Josh Groban them up. Yeah, it brings them closer to God. Raise me up. Yes. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, so they don't have to move their wings. So there's like really low energy expenditure. So they get up to these really, really high heights and then they do this stoop and that's where they kind of just dive from midair and that's when they're able to achieve those speeds of 200 miles per hour and so they're diving typically after prey and so what they'll do like on their dive down is they'll hit their prey like on the wing because they feed on smaller birds okay yeah so they typically feed on let me pull up my list my menu as they refer to it in the webinar yum of oh oh right how could I forget? Okay, so their diet mainly consists of pigeons. <laughs> I was really, really into these guys, and then I was like, oh, no. I might be into them a little bit more than I was five minutes ago. Whatever. But they also like doves, um, waterfowl, and songbirds. So they feed primarily on other birds, unlike other birds of prey that will often be feeding on rodents, insects, mammals, more generally. So, yeah, they're always going to be not always, but primarily going to be feeding on other birds that they kind of take down like mid-flight. Right. Which is so crazy. And catch mid-flight. Well, flying into the earth at 200 miles an hour sounds severe. <laughs> yeah. You know? And so I guess that's that strategy, I think, would be best suited for air-to-air combat. Right. You know? Exactly. Definitely not for, like, catching things on the ground. No. That would be a crash landing. But it did make me think about your raptor specs or about Brand Clubby's raptor specs. Yeah. Well, I'm the one that 
you know, I developed the product for them, but I signed an agreement. So it's not my property. It is brand clubbies. Right. Right. But Raptor Specs, it makes sense because they're like, they got to keep those eyelids clear as they're plummeting to the earth at 200 miles per hour. Well, I think of it as like in space, they say that even just a tiny little rock, because it's traveling at such extreme speeds, it can just pierce through the metal that surrounds, you know, a satellite or whatever. It can wreak havoc. Yeah. So I would imagine it would be the same with like insects or, you know, pieces of sand. Right. Right. But it did say that they had these like third eyelids that actually kind of help with that. And they also have like a hole in their nose too that directs air away from the nose. Um, so they're able to kind of maintain breath while plummeting. <laughs> it's all very highly, highly adapted. And I'm super duper impressed. Okay. So on to another Falcon superlative. They have the fastest visual processing known to any other animal or that's been tested like sure and verified i'm sure there's other creatures out there because i'm sure because we talked about what the mantis shrimp they had like a highly highly developed system of vision but it might just work in a different way right that was the system that we don't like our concept of that can't exist in the way like we don't have an understanding of how they see because we can't Right. Conceptualize it was exactly because they had such a broad spectrum of visibility. Yeah. So this is actually referring to something a little bit different, but I guess this was able to be tested and verified. But so they have the fastest visual processing. So for them, it means they're able to process 129 cycles per second. And I'll explain what that means in terms of like how we see film. So film, as we know, is just like a bunch of single images say in an animation flashed fast enough that we don't see them as separate images but something all connected a fluid image so that happens at a cycle of 24 per second so 24 cycles per second is the point at which we can perceive like a moving image Mm. so in hawk sight that would have to be going at over 129 per second for the hawk to be able to see it as a fluid image. Oh, wow. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they process things faster in a way. Like way faster than we do. But interestingly, according to the wildlife fact file, is that they um, their actual eyes are larger than human eyes, which is crazy if they're like the size of a crow. That's like big ass eyes, right? Yeah. A really goofy eye. <laughs> crow bug-eyed crow no but like on the peregrine falcon maybe it maybe it fits their face a little bit better but on a crow that seems fucking crazy it's all the more reason that raptor specs is such an important product for the peregrine falcon community it's so true brand clubby is really looking out for the specific needs of so many different creatures yeah agreed um all right so okay so this is actually something that was echoed across all my sources for this information, and that is how susceptible peregrine falcons, as well as other birds of prey raptors, are to pesticides and rodenticides. So what happens so much is that you have rodents who are often feeding upon pests that have been consuming pesticides, and then you have the 
rodents who are feeding on the rodenticides. So all these buildup, this buildup of these artificial, like human created toxins. Uh-huh. And then, so when the hawks, not the hawks, but hawks, as well as peregrine falcons and other falcons, birds of birds of prey, when they eat these creatures, there's such a high concentration of all these toxins. So that's often what happens when you're at the top of the food chain is that you kind of consume the aggregate of all of the shit that these other animals have been consuming. So it's really bad for them and has been a huge, huge, huge threat to raptor populations. And one way in which it manifests is that it makes the eggshells of the babies super brittle. So, like, mommy can't sit on it without cracking it. Mm-hmm. A lot of these animals die that way. So, it has been better as DDT has been outlawed. But right. it is still an issue. And uh, there's a, an Instagram account that I love and follow called, called Wild Bird Fund. They're a bird rescue. And they're located on the Upper West Side. Like, you walk by and there's, like, a window full of pigeons. It's heaven. They're very cool. Um, but anyway, you follow their Instagram. You can kind of, kind of track migrations because they'll get like influxes of different sorts of migrating birds depending on the season and the migration. But anyhow, you often see birds on there that come through their shelter that have been poisoned with different sorts of pesticides and just toxic poisoning of one form or another. Lead poisoning comes through a lot. So these birds have to just kind of hang out there and recover and get detoxified, mm. like for realsies, right? Before they can get back out there, right? Oh my gosh, I just feel like I'm rambling so much, but I'll just quickly, quickly talk about a couple fun facts. Okay, so peregrine falcons engage in this crazy thing called courtship feeding, and that's where, so say we've got a male peregrine falcon who's done his stoop. And he catches a poor, unsuspecting pigeon in flight. He's got that pigeon, like, grasped in his talons. And there's a lady he wants to impress. So she'll come flying by, and she'll literally roll over and turn upside down to lift up her talons to catch the prey that he kind of drops down into her grasp. Uh All (laughs) mid-flight. That's adorable. cute so he kind of like gives her a prize pigeon to show that he likes her that's really cute yeah it's probably one of the cuter mating rituals we've heard about recently right that feels like it might be a turnoff for you though as a pigeon lover right so if i were a peregrine falcon i would probably feel very differently about pigeons in which case i would really like it but if i was like meredith's spirit in a peregrine falcon any dude of mine would have to bring me something else That's an official position if I've ever heard one. Simple as that. (laughs) So two more fun facts. So this is the peregrine falcon is the world's most widespread raptor. So they're very cosmopolitan. They're pretty much everywhere except in like extreme Arctic and polar regions. Essentially from the Arctic tundra to the tropics, they're all over the place. And even in cities because what lives in cities? Pigeons. Lots of pigeons. The cosmopolitanism of the pigeon could in fact be linked to the cosmopolitanism of the peregrine falcon. Interesting. I do know that there are some in New York City. Yeah. There and there are ones that live on, you know, notable buildings as well. Like Oh yeah, yeah, people yeah. People say they see them in Midtown all the time. Right. And they um because they like to hang out on like rocky cliffs and be high up, 
often building skyscrapers are particularly attractive to them as well. Mm. Okay, so last fun fact. So because of the way that peregrine falcons enjoy pigeons and the history, which we should talk about at some point, of the use of homing pigeons, carrier pigeons in World War II to say like, quickly transport messages from one location to another because of their ability to like know how to get home, homing pigeons. Peregrine falcons would either be deliberately shot or used to target or kill homing pigeons. So they would be shot out of the air as a means of like preserving the homing pigeons or used to capture and kill homing pigeons, depending on whose side you're on. And on Wow. And whose side the pigeon is on. Is it? It's this is this presentation about peregrine falcons has turned out to be so much more than that, you know? I know. I couldn't really stop myself. I asked you for an extra half hour today because I was like. You're in your swamp rabbit's nest of. Peregrine falcon news. Lines of inquiry. <laughs> they abounded today. So that's all I have. Do you have any questions? I don't, but I would like to recap what you've said so that I retain it. Okay, sure. The peregrine falcons stoop is the name of the dive. Yes. They'll get going to over 200 miles an hour and snatch a pigeon out of the air. Yep. And they may bring it to a potential mate as a sign of their pigeon catching ability. And they live all over the place. Mm Mm-hmm. And... They are the fastest animals in the whole world, right? which is nuts. Yeah. Fastest stupers, I feel like we should say. Sure. I feel like saying fastest animals is correct. Come at me. I mean, I'm open to debating this, but I just don't think it's fair. Yeah. Right on. <laughs> you want to take a break? Yeah, I think it's time. All right. Cool. Grr. Meow. Raw. Her. A puma browse. A puma slinks. A puma runs. A puma drinks. A puma knows. The missing link. A puma shows. Fashion, methinks. Puma, puma purses. New couture paw bags. From Brand Clubby. For the Puma and Allah. Who's Goose? Who's Well, Meredith, I, I heard you clip clopping into the room. <laughs> we know what time it is. It's Who's Hoofs. All right. I'm going to go first. Okay. This hoof is a chonky hoof. This hoof is hardly unusual, but it is odd. Mm-hmm. This hoof is frequently a gorgeous silvery gray. This hoof is not as famous as the attached horn, but is the foundation upon which our sturdy friend stands strong. Whose hoofs? Is it a rhinoceros? It is a rhinoceros. Woo! All right, Mike. Who's hooves? These hooves trample all around the forest regions of Central and South America and also Southeast Asia. These hooves carry a body similar in shape to a pig's. 
these hooves, unlike a pig's hooves, are odd-toed as opposed to even-toed. These hooves belong to a creature with a fun prehensile nose trunk. Elephant hooves? No. Much smaller. It's a weird one. I don't know this one, Meredith. It's the tapir. The tapir. Okay. This hoof is attached to a creature near to my heart. This hoof is adept at trampling most of Northern and parts of South America. This hoof is the means of travel for the most widely distributed undulate in the Americas. This hoof is attached to the official state mammal of the state of Ohio. Whose hoof? Whoa. Is that the llama? The state of Ohio, not the state of Peru. <laughs> the state of Ohio. It's the white-tailed deer. Transportation? Is that what you said? The hoof is the means of travel for the most widely distributed undulate of North America because it travels around on its cute little hooves. I see. I. You thought that we were making like airplanes out of the hoof. No, for some reason in my mind, I just like blended all of those things together regardless of like syntax and just assumed you meant like an animal that carries things or conveys people uh-huh. or conveys goods. Uh-huh. But that clearly not. You can't saddle up a deer. You can't. Whose hooves, Mike? These hooves are also odd-toed. Contrary to popular belief, these hooves didn't trample the U.S. until after the Columbian Exchange. These hooves carry a majestic creature with great hair who loves to run to and fro across the southwest U.S. and northern Mexico. These hooves belong to a creature that can't truly be replicated in a Ford vehicle. These hooves are the hooves of the Mustang. Yes! Oh, Well, Meredith, I think we both got one, right? So we're tied. It's a tie. This edition of Who's Hoof ends in a tie. I'm okay with that. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Who? Taxana me. Kingdom. Animalia. The show still isn't about tariffs. Philo. Arthropoda. Apparently this is my new journey. Class. Insects. Hexapods. Order. Orthopatera. Grasshoppers, locusts, crickets. Family. Grilly day. Cricket, cricket. Chirp, chirp. Genus. Aketa. It's a genus with a very notable member. Species. Domesticus. It's the house cricket. A standard feeding insect that can also be kept as a pet. Cricket? Mm-hmm. Jiminy. Chirp, chirp. Keely, wait, what was the funny one? Kika day? What was it? Grilly day? Grilly day. Don't worry, we're going to do some tax facts. Okay, here. good. Okay. So we have the kingdom animalia, the phylum's arthropoda. We've been talking about arthropods a lot. The class is insecta. So we have our hexapods. Yep, six-legged. Six-legged. Then we have the Order is Orthopatera, and that's grasshoppers, locusts, crickets, 
Katie Dids, and Weta. Cool. And then the suborder, Encephora, which is the various types of crickets and their allies, <laughs> which include true crickets, camel crickets, bush crickets, a.k.a. Katie Dids, Griggs, Weta, and Kulula monsters. <laughs> That sounds like another way to refer to like a cougar, as in like women that prey on younger younger boys because they're all Kalua monsters. <laughs> a cougar loves a mudslide. Well, this is Kulula. Oh. So it's slightly different than Kalula, but it's very close. Forgive me. And I will say if your nightmares aren't rich enough, check out the Weta, W-E-T-A. It's a giant cricket-like thing. It's a cricket or a cricket ally. <laughs> now we get to the grilly day, which is the family. These are the true crickets. They have mainly cylindrical bodies. They have round heads with long antenna. And then those things that kind of come out of the back are the cerci uh, that come out of the end of the abdomen. Those kind of like two little bits, kind of like at the back end of your house centipede friend. Oh, yeah. I'm looking at, okay, I'm looking at a cricket right now. I, Do you remember what those structures were called on the house centipede? I don't, but I could find out. She's scurrying away with her myriapods. I'll tell you that there are more than 900 cricket species. The family is all around the world at latitudes below 55 degrees. So it's generally not in, you know, the Arctic and the Antarctic, but it's everywhere else. Oh my gosh, it's like our peregrine falcon. Mm-hmm. The greatest diversity is in the tropics, which I think is probably true of most insect species. It lives in a wide variety of habitats, grasslands, bushes, forests, marshes, beaches, and caves. It's mostly nocturnal. We best know our cricket friends for loud, persistent chirping sounds of males trying to attract females. There are some species that are mute. The ones who sing have good hearing via the tympana on the tibia of the front legs and the term of venery for a cricket is an orchestra oh cute and that makes sense because they're like a big string section exactly i have to say that my friend yeah. texted me i i you know time's a funny thing but i had a friend of mine text me yesterday that he was asking alexa what the term of venery was for crickets and he didn't know that i was researching crickets so this is a nice little surprise for listener Mike, a different Mike, another Mike, a Mike Kick, a, a Mike Kick, if you will. These are the mics I know, I know. <laughs> These are the mics I know. Here I was having already researched crickets, but I thought for some reason that we had already recorded and released this episode. <laughs> Wait, really? So that was like pure coincidence? Pure coincidence, yeah. How amazing little cricket confluence. How cool. Yeah. Yeah, a little cricket, a little cricket confluence, a little cricket coince. <laughs> Carica coince. There wasn't a ton of information on the genus specifically. Uh, there were probably about 15 species, but the species, the Erecta domesticus, aka the house cricket, is most likely native to southwestern Asia. Between 1950 and 2000, it became the standard feeder insect for the pet and research industries. And because of that, has spread worldwide. And then they are also kept as pets, most notably in China and Japan. So if you had a lizard or an amphibian growing up, or if you knew someone who did, or if you went to a pet store and you saw someone purchasing crickets mm -hmm. between the year 1950 and 2000, 
it was likely the domesticated house cricket, the Erecta domesticus. But not anymore. Well, (laughs) we're going to get to that. Okay. First, a physical description. Sure. It's usually about 0.6 to 0.8 inches, like 15 to 20 millimeters or so. Females and males look similar, but the females have an ovipositor emerging from their rear, which is about a half an inch long. Rear. And then the ovipositor is black-brown, and it's surrounded by two appendages. (laughs) And the males have more prominent circe. They would. It takes them about two to three months to complete their life cycle. They have no special overwintering stage, but can survive cold weather in and around buildings and in trash dumps where heat from fermentation likely sustains them. They'll deposit their eggs in whatever damp substrate is available. And the juveniles look a lot like the adults, but they're smaller and they lack wings. So this cricket is edible by humans. It's obviously edible by creatures. And it's it's farmed for human consumption in Southeast Asia and parts of Europe and North America. It's frequently dry roasted. It's That's regarded as the most nutritious method. But yep. you can also get them deep fried. When they're farmed, they're mostly freeze dried and often processed into a powder that's called cricket flour. Oh, oh man. And I have some nutritional facts about crickets. <laughs> The serving size is one and a half cups or about 30 grams. And that's 150 calories, six grams of fat, 2.3 grams of saturated fat, 0.05 grams of trans fat. Got 50 milligrams of cholesterol, 100 milligrams of sodium, total carbs, six grams, six grams of dietary fiber, 18 grams of protein. Ooh. A little bit of vitamin D, a little bit of vitamin B12, some calcium, some iron, some potassium, 250. 73 milligrams of potassium. Delicious? Yeah, totally delicious. Meredith, you asked earlier about whether or not these crickets are still used as feeder insects. Yeah. But in in 2002, the cricket paralysis virus, aka CPV, appeared and rapidly spread through Europe. And then in 2010, it spread through the U.S. Oh, no. And it would be very, it's a very lethal virus to this specific species of cricket and a few other species of cricket. And so the house crickets pretty much eliminated from the cricket breeding industries of North America and Europe because of this virus. Oh, my gosh. It was like the great cricket plague. Right. And it caused, when it happened, it caused shortages for pet owners and researchers. They eat what all those animals eat in the meantime. Oh my gosh. I don't know. I have no idea. But it's been replaced by the Jamaican field cricket. Oh. Which is resistant to cricket paralysis virus, aka CPV. And the Jamaican field cricket also has many of the desirable features of the house cricket. So it's been, it's become a a really um, popular uh, replacement. Gotcha. And has pretty much usurped the house cricket. Look out. Unlike you, I don't really have a lot of facts today. I kind of, that's kind of it, actually. Do you have any cricket questions or queries or reflections? I do have a reflection. Do you, or did you ever have or see that um, that children's book by Eric Carle called The Very Quiet Cricket? I don't know that I have. What's that about? Okay, so you might be familiar with Eric Carle from The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Like that famous yes. children's book? Yes, of course. Such a delight. 
But then there's also the very quiet cricket. And so it's about this little cricket who can't really make any sound. It's like, he rubbed his little wings together and he couldn't do it. And he rubbed his little, or I forget what what's actually, you know, I'm not sure how crickets make that sound. I know it involves that tympanum. Well, that's how they hear, but they rub their uh, wings together, I believe. Oh, it is. They rub their wings together. Wait, what was the creature that I did that used the tympanum for sound production? I'm not sure. I yeah, I don't remember. I forget. It was like a few weeks ago. How quickly I forget. I mean, we're already on episode 41. This is, in fact, our 84th, I think 85th animal, because I don't think the Christmas or the Thanksgiving episode, rather, with the turkey, I don't think we counted that. So I think it's our 85th animal. We're losing track. You know? That's a lot of malls to keep track of. So many malls. But anyhow, but it was like, yeah, it rubbed its little wings together and like it couldn't do it. And then the book itself, it was like kind of a fancy book because like by the time you got to the last page and turned it, it activated this little sound device embedded in the spine of the book. Amazing. And finally, the little cricket made its little chirp chirps. Oh, my God. At the end, it's very cute. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I have to say that like crickets do carry a certain amount of um weight in my heart because in my family there was a pet amphibian at one point so there were always crickets in my home for several years there were wait what is this pet what was the pet amphibian i you know there's needs to be a certain amount of mystery about (laughs) one's pets if one desires to maintain a a level of internet security i feel like i've addressed this before (laughs) So I will provide no more details regarding this pet amphibian, except to say that there was a domicile enclosure for the amphibian. And then there was also a feed enclosure where there were crickets. And so there was a little cricket colony in my home for several years that would be replenished with additional crickets purchased at a pet emporium. (laughs) And I remember one time there was one cricket that was bigger than all the other ones that they gave me, and they had called it Spike at the pet store. They had named that cricket Spike. (laughs) And what, like, what did Spike use his brawn for anything, or did he just hang out like a normal cricket Joe? Well, I... I think Spike lasted a little longer than the other crickets, but the pet amphibian did, in fact, consume (laughs) Spike. It's like that lobster that got so huge, people just felt bad killing it. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Man. Yeah. Crickets. I do love them. I love love a musical creature. Sure. And it is just such like a beautiful sound of summer to hear crickets. It's nice. It is very nice. I kind of miss them. I feel like I don't ever hear them here. Yeah. You don't. Yeah, definitely not. You definitely hear cicadas for sure. Sure. Especially right now. I always think this when I hear them. My dad always called them the back to school cicadas because it's like the cicadas that come out like late summer. Right. Right. You'd always hear them and associate it with like, oh, fuck. Go back to school. School starting. Damn you, bugs. Well, cool. Uh, I guess this is a good time to take a break. Yeah. Many of us koalas have chlamydia, and we all know how stressful it can be to manage our symptoms. Enough of the late-night searches for Dr. Koala. While, ironically enough, you're going blind on account of the disease raging through your body. 
and no more crossing a dangerous highway only to wait in a long line at Doug Dingo's pharmacy. We all know how chatty Doug can be. It shouldn't be so difficult to get the chlamydia care and the chlamydia medication that we need. Meet Brand Clubby's newest offering, Koala's number one chlamydicare, the easiest way for koalas like us to manage our health. Koala's number one chlamydicare will ship your medication for free to your tree in discreet packaging, just in case you've got nosy neighbors. Koala's number one chlamydicare is available to all koalas, regardless of insurance. Brand Clubby believes all creatures should have easy access to affordable health care. That's why we're offering a free virtual consultation with Brand Clubby's knowledgeable team of pharmacy frogs. If Koala's number one chlamydicare is right for you, your first round of medication is on us with code FREESTD. Thanks again, Brand Clubby, for your sustained commitment to animal health. I find it's best to smell with my whole lungs. I like to smell with, as if my nose was down my throat. <laughs> That's how I can really detect that it's oats and we must be in the feedback. Nailed it. All right. So Lucas from NYC asks, We've heard that French squirrels like ballet, but what about Rushman Desmonds? Do they like ballet? Oh my gosh. Lucas, you know, I'm glad you asked because that is a definitive yes. <laughs> yeah, there's no question. Russia Desmonds love ballet. <laughs> yeah. Desmonds love to just drink a bunch of vodka and just go watch dance and then clap and go out and drink more vodka afterwards. Like that's absolutely what they're here for, for sure. Yes. And being that Cole Porter, who I always think would have a, or Anthony, he put this idea into my head, but I agree, that a Cole Porter, like, musical character would be named Desmond. <laughs> Everything's very, hello, Desmond. And you know a man that says Desmond. Desmond. He loves ballet. <laughs> Cole Porter wrote a ballet. So, I mean, duh. Yeah, we're... We're really finding several ways to say that the answer to this question is a resounding adoy. Of course they do. <laughs> Duh. Also, I like to think of the Desmonds as kind of an extension of myself. I know this is like centering, like very human centering here for an animal podcast. But I do love the Desmond. I do like to think that they're into the things that I'm into. And I love, love, love ballet. Right, right. I know that about you. So, uh, fish positions, obviously. Duh! Ding, 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 ding. Ricky from Tulsa asks, Barry was actually home alone. Every time Kevin McAllister left the house, Barry is a victim. Is that a question? I don't think that's a question, Ricky, uh, but I guess we'll provide some perspective on that. Sure. Uh, so Barry was most likely fed on these house crickets that we talked about earlier, preferably gut-loaded with vegetables. We like to think that Buzz left some for him. Yep. Presumably Barry's a male. We have not gendered. I don't mean to misgender uh, a tarantula. Right, and I guess I should make it clear after listening to last week's episode or maybe what I put in the Instagram. Somehow I feel like I was insinuating that Barry was the name of the tarantula in Home Alone, like his name is printed out in the script. But really, Barry is the name of the tarantula that played 
Buzz's tarantula <laughs> in Home Alone. Right. Okay. Right. Buzz's unnamed tarantula. Yes. Yeah. And presumably the name actually is uncredited in the film, you know, despite all the screen time. Oh, no. Barry. Barry, we see you. We love you. Yeah, we do. We do. Um, I don't know about my fish position on your statement, Ricky, but I think generally I'm here for Barry discourse. and Absolutely. I think that in some ways, yes, Barry was in fact a victim. If only because being left out of the credits. Yeah. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, okay. So Georgie from Windsor wants to know, what do raptors journal about? Georgie, I'm so glad you asked because we happen to talk about raptors today. And you just went to a raptor webinar. I so sure did. you seem to be a sort of font of raptor knowledge. I guess. What do they journal about? Well, I'd like to think, I don't know. Oh, well, the amazing views that they get. I'd be like, as I was soaring over this great northeast region of ours, I saw A, B, and C. They see so much in a day. I think that maybe a typical raptor journal entry may include some musings about how they have a new crush, oh. and so they snatched a pigeon out of the air and they brought it to her to be like, look, I got you this cute pigeon but she's just not that into him. Right. Or maybe, you know, some journaling about how these guys are always catching pigeons and providing them for the ladies and there's no reciprocation. Maybe there's like some, you know, raptor incels. Ew, no way. Raptors are like the coolest and incels are like the opposite of coolest. Yeah. Well, I guess, I guess that each raptor journals about whatever is closest to their heart, really. Yeah, it's true. So it's probably much like whatever humans journal about. Yeah, food, relationships. Crushes. Interpersonal circumstances, those types of things. Yeah, exactly. So ding, ding, ding. Yeah, ding, ding, ding. Okay, great. Yeah, solid feedback, Meredith. Uh, Solid epi, really. Yeah, I agree. I learned so much. Myself also. And I guess, you know, keep the questions coming. Animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. And have a splendid week in animals. Arf, arf, arf. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal Fan Club. <laughs>